Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Heil Russell. And I'm Cameron Regal. And before we get started on this episode, I want to give a quick plug for ourselves. We are now on Spotify. You can listen to every episode as it goes up. You can listen to our archive going back to 2015. But yeah, if you go to dkvine.com forward slash Spotify or just search for The Conversation there, you can now listen to us, uh, and if that's your preferred podcast listening method of choice, there you go. You're welcome. And you can listen to this episode as well, because our guest today is the founder of Dream Prism Press and the author and artist behind the upcoming Dream Side, and of course, Ukulele and the Cracklestone, which just saw its Grand Tome Special Edition Sell out at limited run games. Please welcome back to the show, DM Gumbo. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming back. It's been three years since you've been here. Uh, no, you, it hasn't. Yes, That's it has. Impossible. Yeah, That's you. Impossible. Yeah, you were on the conversation. I think just as the Kickstarter campaign was gearing up for Cracklestone. I, I think I checked the date. It was uh, about October 2018. Ooh, yeah, yeah yeah so so we we have a lot more to talk about now since we've actually read the graphic novel and and had some time to sit with it but first of all congrats on the grand tome edition selling out uh that must feel good to have all the copies uh, moved off the digital shelves yeah yeah that's uh that's pretty cool um yeah they tell me they sell out <laughs> I, I i assume they did so uh, that's uh, I, I'll, I'll trust their numbers, but you know, re- regardless of whether or not it sold out, at least there uh, there are still people discovering it. So that's that's good news. Plus, it's a really cool book. I've got one in front of me here, actually. Yeah. Well, before we talk about you know the story and the art and all of that good stuff, I did want to talk a little bit about the packaging because Cameron and I. We both agree that the physical edition of this book, now we're not talking about the Grand Tome edition because we don't have that in our hands yet, but the uh, physical edition, the, the hardcover edition of Cracklestone, um, and we were both Kickstarter backers, so we got that one, but it's one of the most gorgeous books I think we've ever held in our hands. So nice. how important, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's serious, like this is the kind of thing that you would expect to see and one of the finer libraries of the world, of the ancient world, you know, like the, something it's incredibly well considered as a physical object. Yes. Not, not just in terms of the cover art and the interior art, which are gorgeous, but just the like construction of the book itself, the pages and all of the like um, <laughs> fancy trimmings of it. Yeah, in this era of mass production and consumption, you know, to find something this elegant, you would probably have to go scouring and for an archaeological dig or something to, you know, find something made of parchment. It's it's (laughs) impressive. And I want to know, like, how important was it for you to make the actual binding itself a work of art? Because it seems like it very much fits into your artistic sensibilities. 
Um, yeah, it's funny. It's funny when you you say all that and ask that because um, <laughs> I my reaction to that is to remember six months of shouting and screaming at a manufacturer that had to, that had to put up with, with me. Um, and I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I feel terrible about how that all went, but it was, uh, yeah, it, it, I see what's missing. <laughs> and, uh, because there, there was a lot of stuff planned that we ended up having to cut, um, from the physical edition, but yes, it was extraordinarily important. The, the physicality of the book, uh, is a big part of the entire pitch and process. Um, I mean, I can elaborate a little bit on the foundation behind that and why I think that's so important, if you'd like. I would love to, because I, I don't think it's something I ever considered until I got uh, this in the mail. And by, by the way, bravo on the uh, shipping. It it, oh. it was the most well-protected, yeah. <laughs> like, because I... I, I have a very particular mental hang-up when it comes to my stuff. And my, mm-hmm. my, my stuff cannot be blemished. And oh, corners, corners. Corners. <laughs> yeah. um, like, a, a, the occasional wear and tear is okay. A, a slight ding here or there. The shows is well-loved. But if there's something that I just cannot make peace with, I have to disown it and get another copy. And it's, it's the worst feeling. Uh, I have gone through so much in the way of books and albums. And I usually have to buy two of everything. One to keep in mint condition on my shelf and the other to actually read and consume and enjoy. And it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. So whenever I go all in on something, especially something that, you know, aligns with my, passions and and fandoms as this book does so you know i I go all in but i worry because i'm thinking oh no it's coming in the mail it's being delivered it's what what if the packaging uh the protection is off what if there is a dented corner oh and it's it's what should feel like christmas morning or your birthday where you're unwrapping a gift just becomes the most agonizing 30 seconds of your life as you're waiting to see what damage uh, has befallen your book. None of that. It, it was, it was pristine. And I just wanted to thank you for that personally, but. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> glad, I'm glad that worked out. We actually had, um, uh, it was shipped in what's, what's commonly called a pizza box mailer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the pizza box mailer has a, um, uh, well, there are two ways of doing it. We actually didn't go for the craziest option, which is that there are actual cardboard bumpers inside the box. So the idea being that when we initially we had thought to use a wrap around mail. Actually, at the time of the Kickstarter campaign for U.S. shipments, we were literally going to use like one of those hard cardboard envelopes. But the problem with the envelopes is that when you put the book into the envelope, it squeezes the corners, and so it can, it causes that rounding of the corners that you get with a lot of Amazon packages. Uh Um, And uh, so we decided not to do that, but that's how I had priced it (laughs) for backers. So I thought, okay, if we upgrade the box, I'm going to be losing more money. So we thought, okay, well, let's just upgrade the box because better than having everyone get a damaged uh, book or having people who are, you know, people who are buying this, I figured are are kind of diehard collectors or people who are very interested in ukulele. They're going to, they're going to be the kinds of people like you just said, uh, is describing yourself. And I'm the same way, by the way. <laughs> uh, and so I, I empathize, 
Um, so we decided to go with the pizza box, um, which is great because it keeps the, the book basically with the pizza box, it cannot, uh, really get the corners dented, um, because it is, has these, uh, cardboard bumpers inside. Now our boxes did not have those. Um, so we just, we wrapped it up in an extensive amount of bubble wrap and we thought that that would be satisfactory. It was. Uh, and I actually felt safe reading it because of how sturdy it was. So, oh yeah. These are uh, tough books. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. I want to know like what, what makes your brain tick as far as creating something like this. Uh, cause it, it's, it, it sounds interesting. Like you got into some verbal arguments in, in, in oh, its production man. process. <laughs> it's also, it, was awful. it was awful. That's yeah. fascinating it, to me. Cause I mean, I've dealt with physical printing and when is DK vine ever going to get to talk about book binding again? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, you could talk with me about it all day. I had, I had six to eight months of just what I, what I call just, it was one of the most, it was bizarre how stressful it was. Um, I like I was not expecting that, <laughs> but, but we can get into that. But the 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 logic behind the physicality, the quality physicality, is 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 half the experience. Because uh, when when I was a kid, you know, you, you remember undoubtedly a company called Working Designs um, that made uh, primarily localization of, of JRPGs, um, kind of b- b- way before they were cool, <laughs> and. Uh, <clears throat> they, I think, like back in '88 or '89, they got started, and uh, they they were known for doing these high quality premium collectors editions. So they would they would change up the packaging, which nowadays is not quite so special. But at the time, you had harmonious packaging for all of the uh, different consoles. So all, all the Genesis games came in a similar box. All the Super NES games came in a similar box, and so on. Uh, but the uh, particular, I think they handled Turbo Graphics games. You know, the, you know the, the the million sellers that those were, and then uh, they moved on to uh, work on uh, the Sega CD again. Was you know just a financial boom, <laughs> and then they you're, you're, uh, they you're talking from, to you're talking to like one of the only Virtual Boy fans in the world. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> like your entire collection of Virtual Boy, if you get everything, fits on one shelf. <laughs> Yeah, like I've, actually, I've actually got a, a carrying case from Blockbuster Video, the show my age, that can literally fit every Virtual Boy game inside of it. So, <laughs> that's, oh man, I, I, I still want to get, I, I want to try that again, the Virtual Boy. But yeah, with uh, but they moved on from Sega CD to Saturn, and uh, Saturn to PlayStation, and then PlayStation Two was their final console before they went under and they were known for doing these premium packaging so what, what was really interesting about it is that they would stand out on a shelf in a very distinct way so like i remember when i first discovered them i think it was in the saturn era um and you would see all the saturn boxes which were already cool because they were these big oversized plastic shielded um boxes with big elegant manuals with lots of cover art on them that i thought was really cool but then the working designs one would have like embossing and it would have this super thick, glossy paper. It would have foil on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they were so attractive that I remember them just, my eyes just beelining for them, you know. Um, and I picked these boxes up and then I would I would buy the game and I would take it home. And there were all these surprises. So when I opened it, uh, there would be stickers inside the manual. Uh, there would be, uh, the paper itself was way th- like thicker and, and more dense than, uh, you know, other 
game manuals. It just, it seemed like they were producing, as you, as you call it, a, re- a real work of art from the packaging standpoint. And what I found is there was a strange correlation between the quality of the packaging and how much I ended up enjoying the game. Mm-hmm. And I kind of remembered this uh, as, as, as things moved into a digital era. Um, uh, significantly so, where people just did not seem to care as much about physical packaging. Actually, when I first went out to California, I used to work for Insomniac Games. Um, and when I first moved out to California, I was still, of course, buying games. And my first order of business, and this will make you cringe, is when as soon as I would buy, I was just done with stuff. <laughs> and I bought, uh, whenever I'd buy a game, usually, you know, a Wii game, ah, it was a Wii game, you know, I'd buy this <laughs> game and I would immediately throw out the packaging. I'd throw, I'd throw out the manual, I'd throw out the box. Ooh, and I'd, I think I yeah. just broke out the hives. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Kyle <laughs> Hives. Yeah, or Kyle Kyle Hives. Wait, what what will we call you? No, I, I like Kyle Hives. Uh, well, my my B in impossible layer is Hive Russell, so we'll we'll just go with that. <laughs> oh, very, perfect, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hive Russell. I like that. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I got a B. <laughs> they had to, they had to creatively uh, change the spelling so they didn't have to up the maturity rating of the game. Um, so. So yeah, I would throw out the box in the manual and then I would stick this, the disc in a, one of those binders. And, uh, then from there, it's like everything became digital and it just seemed like nobody cared about the physicality anymore. Everyone was so anxious to move to, to digital. Uh, this is becoming a rambling story, but bear with me. And, uh, so as time progressed, uh, soon came all the doom and gloom predictions of, I would say 2008, 2009, where everything was supposed to go digital. And it was going to be, oh, movies are digital. No one's buying DVDs or Blu-rays and uh, games are going digital. No one's going to, soon there won't be any box stores. Um, and and uh, music, you know, music already went, right? Everything's MP3. And then uh, there was a fourth prediction. And uh, I kind of agreed to the first three, but the fourth uh, stuck in my mind. And that was that books were going to go completely digital. And if you remember, that was a prediction of 2008, 2009. Um that it, and all the smart people agreed, <laughs> uh, the two of them that I know. And um, it was all supposed to go digital. And I said, wait a minute, I don't think books are going to go digital, um, even though we have all these oncoming uh, uh, tablet devices and things. And I thought there's something about the physicality of reading a book that's different. You know, uh, the, the, the product of a movie, a game, and uh, music is, the, is the, the stuff that you experience when you put the disc in the player. Right. And uh, so the difference would be negligible. But with a book, there's a very different experience. The, the handling the paper, um, the experience of opening it, the cracking of the spine, the smell, everything. All of that is, is part, even the smell of the ink, because um, there are different types of inks, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and so there's petroleum and, and soy inks. And so the, the, the physicality is a huge part of the experience of reading a book that I remember as a kid. Um, and I thought it's interesting that when I, when I read a book digitally, first of all, I instantly just expect it to move, <laughs> you know, I want the pictures to move uh, when it's on paper, uh, there's just a different experience. And then it, it tied in with that. And I'm sure this is something you, you could understand, uh, quite well is that there is a, an ownership, uh, sort of, 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 of owning, um, the book and being able to take it off a shelf and put it back on a shelf. 
mm-hmm. and be able to see the book is, is um, I use the word trophy in a way. It's kind of like a trophy because it represents something that you really love. So when I uh, was pitching initially to game studios, it was actually uh, kind of harnessing that assumption that everything was going digital and to kind of provide a juxtaposition where you said, okay, the game is going digital. Everything is going digital. But uh, players want something f- physical that they can put on their shelf to represent the thing that they like. Uh, and if they don't have that, there's a strange emptiness in their celebratory appreciation of the, the products that they they like, you know, with games, movies, whatever. And so the book was kind of a way to substitute for the lack of a physical edition of a game, you know, and uh, you, you you had ukulele, the game that you would love. And, uh, but you would also have this really gorgeous kind of physical book that you could put on the shelf and it kind of represents that game. Um, and so <clears throat> studios seem to like that pitch. Uh, and the physicality became a very important aspect of it. But I do think physicality is extremely important. Plus you own it. You know, there's no um, DRM nonsense. Uh, it's just yours. You can open it anytime. You can give it to somebody else. Um, you can eventually, we made them high quality enough that the last your lifetime, you give them to your kids, um, you know. And so I wanted it to be something that would stand the test of time and just be this beautiful work of art. And I guess the final point is just that the physicality is part of the art of the book itself. So there's the story and then there's the book. If the story is contained within a crap book, um, it ruins uh, a lot of the experience. My One of my biggest pet peeves these days are what are called perfect binding hardcovers. Um, and this is called the cheap out crap <laughs> that a lot of publishers will do to, to save a lot of money where uh, the the ukulele books are what, what are called section sewn. They're Smythe sewn, actually. It's just a different type of sewing. Um, and they're put in 16-page signatures, um, and those go in the hardcover so that when you open the book, and this is going to get to one of the annoying things <laughs> that I have to mention, because our books are still glued. They were not supposed to be. Um, but um, so that when you open the book, they lay flat. Mm-hmm. And uh, the laying flat is extremely important to comics because uh, have you ever um, gotten – they do this a lot with manga, like a lot of hardcover manga where you open it and you feel like you're te- going to tear the spine apart oh, yeah. just trying yeah. to hold it open. And if you try and read it in bed, you need to like use both hands <laughs> to keep this yeah. stupid thing open, and, and it's, it's really frustrating. It's worse when there's like artwork, a two page spread of something and you feel like you're going to rip the book in half to actually see it. But you also yeah. don't yeah. like you're, you're trying to hold it, but you're trying not to get your finger oils on the pages. And it just becomes <laughs> this uh, just disgusting tug of war between your own worst impulses and actually trying to get into the story. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, with the right kind of laminate on the paper um, and the, the skin oil thing isn't an issue. Um, but but yeah, See, it, you've it, thought of everything. This this is fascinating <laughs> to me. I can just talk to you for the rest of the episode about binding. <laughs> I, I told you we, we might run over the lawn if you get me rambling. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, it, it is extremely important. And like you said, with two page spreads, you also get distortion of the image. Um, and so if you have a face that crosses over, I've got this problem with my current project. You know, where I've got well, this one spread, I have no idea what to do with because it's a, it's a close up of a face that spreads out over two pages, and no matter what I'm thinking with this binding, it's just gonna it's just gonna look so distorted, and uh, if if it doesn't lay flat, and so I keep zooming in on the face more and more to get less and less <laughs> uh, lost in the gutter, 
And uh, anyway, so yeah, it's it's th- there's a there's a really nice elegant way to do these books, but they 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 are they do tend to be a little more costly. And if you don't get the numbers up on your sales, uh, then uh, it's going to cost just a tremendous amount. And, and our 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 books ended up costing way more than uh, we had initially planned. Well, I I I mean I can't speak for you obviously but as a fan as 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 a consumer of your product i think it was worth it because this definitely is going to linger in my memory and in my esteem far more just because it is a work of art unto itself before you even crack it open so um thank you i i guess i guess just yes um, absolutely i i have it on my sacred shelf uh, sacred shelves actually with all of my Donkey Kong universe games. It's, it's right there, uh, on the, the book portion of it. It's my canon book portion of it. So, uh, it, it has it like a trophy, a, a place of honor on my mantle. Uh, but, but before we move on, I do <laughs> have a quick question. Can you help me get my autographed book plate affixed? Uh, because I don't want it to be off center and oh, I'm yeah. <laughs> desperately afraid to even attempt it. <laughs> uh, I was, I had thought about that with the book plate, that if you stick it in there and it's lopsided, it's going to be there forever. Cause yeah, the, the book plates are, they have an extremely strong adhesive. And yeah. if you stick them in they're they're set. I mean, that's kind of the point. Of the I'm book so plate. scared. Right. I've put it inside, but I haven't taken the, uh, the back peeling off. So it's just kind of <laughs> sitting in there because I'm too afraid to even attempt well, well, if, if if you think that you have obsessive compulsive uh, problems here with this, then then let me let me let me tell you what I worry about. So, if you notice on the inside cover, we use logos, right? Mm-hmm. And the nothing drives me more nuts uh, than tangents, um, oh. uh, which is one of the reasons that uh, the book uh, took me as long as it did. Is I, I spent I, I don't even know how many months eliminating tangents throughout all the art, um, and so uh, when you stick the book plate in the inside and leaves it's virtually impossible to do it in a way that doesn't uh tangent one of the logos <laughs> and that's <laughs> no. the kind of thing that really bothers me i'm not as worried about it being straight I, uh it's more <laughs> does it tangent awkwardly and, and look elegant alongside the logo so i thought you know what that's a problem i'll leave for backers <laughs> <laughs> It's the, one of the most evil things I've ever heard on this podcast, oh, and I've heard you, quite you, a few. Do you, do you know why we did the sign book plate? Speaking why? of evil, the reason we did the sign book plate is it's it's a reason of practicality with the production of the books because it, this is the kind of thing that I didn't think about until uh, we were doing the Kickstarter, and then I thought, okay, oh wait a minute, this is going to be a real problem because I was going to offer signed copies, so that was going to be part of the um, the the. Um, the backer edition, right? And it was going to be, each book was going to be signed. Now you can do that using uh, one of two ways. You can either get the books physically, which means that however many books have to be freighted to me, unpacked out of a wooden pallet, uh, you know, unwrapped in all these boxes. And then I have to open each book, sign it, pack it all back up, ship it back down to to the fulfillment center, which is not practical under any circumstances, or I have to fly to the warehouse or I have to fly to the manufacturer and have them set aside like four to eight hours for me to sit in a room and just sign each book. Right. (laughs) Or you do what's called a tip in page, 
And the tip-in page is, is something that we have in the Grand Tome Edition where um, they mail me the paper that will be mm -hmm. bound into the book. And then I sign that particular page and then they, they bind the page into the book. It's a, it's a lot easier <laughs> to do it this way because it's one box UPS sends uh, to and from. And uh, so that, that was the way we ended up doing it for the Grand Tome Edition. But I, I wasn't entirely aware of this methodology during the, uh, the Kickstarter. So I thought, well, the book plate is a way for us to hypothetically have a signed edition without the complexity of having to have physical books be ported or having me have to fly to the manufacturer in case we were printing overseas or something like that. Um, so anyway, that's why we, we designed the book plate. As anxiety inducing as it is to um, affix that on, it does also come off as another like pre premium accoutrement of these books so i think it works out in the end <laughs> oh yeah yeah and and the book plate was fun to design I, I i that's another thing that i feel bad about with the manufacturer because a lot of this was very um piecemeal and just learning as i went um and you, you'd be surprised how isolated i was in <laughs> a lot of this development um and the the books were printed in the u.s they were printed at a, a company called Justin's through api print um, and they were done in Tennessee. The, um, three of the ancillary products of the six were done in China. Um, the book plate was one of them. And this poor lady who was dealing with me in our extraordinary, for them, extraordinarily low um, print numbers um, for the book plate kept making fun of me because she said, you have to order more so we can actually make some money on this, will you? And <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, so I think I ordered what we needed, which is maybe, I don't know, 800 or so. And they ended up just printing 2000 <laughs> and, and they just sent them to me. They're like, here, here, you uh, low ordering jerk, just have 2000 of them because it's not worth it for us to do 800. But I, she, the, the meticulous, um, like I said, obsessive compulsive worry on my end was a real pain for these people because that she sent me a sample that was almost perfect. I, I said, okay, it's got to be a book plate. I sent her the dimensions. I told her it, it should be like an eggshell. You know, this is like American Psycho stuff. I, I said, I'm like, it should be like an eggshell wipe. And you want to use gold foil. It has to be hit a certain way. They did like a foil thing, and the, the foil was too thin. So it, it wasn't detailed enough, so we ended up redoing that, I think. Um, and the, the thing that really – I. I <laughs> Oh God, I still feel bad about this. Is it, the paper was just a little too yellow. Um, <laughs> and she told me that she had to, she like ran out to buy the paper and like, like she drove in her car to a store to get paper for them to make these book plates. And I, I told her, I said, yeah, but it's a little too yellow. <laughs> and <laughs> and she, she ended up having to go back to the store and she got a slightly less yellow so we could get a little closer to the eggshell color that we have. Um, and so, the, yes, there, there was, this was, and, and all of this is, of course, at five o'clock in the morning, uh, U.S. time, somewhere between noon and five o'clock, because there's a 12 hour time difference. So the entire Chinese manufacturing process involved me sporadically just staying up until six o'clock in the morning. Because if you don't respond to a question that they need an answer to, you will halt the manufacturing for an entire 24 hours, you know, because 
they have to wait for it to be work hours for us to respond. And then they'll have another question. So it'll be like, okay, you got another day delay. But it's like, if I'm in real time to respond, they can get it done very quickly. So all of our manufacturing went this way with the pin, the um, book plate, and uh, what was the third, the bookmark. Um, those were all done in, in China. So yeah, there was a lot of stuff like this <laughs> that happened during the production. So yeah, we, we've talked at length about how gorgeous and well-considered um, we both think the, um, the Kickstarter backer editions of the book were. But um, the Graham Tome edition looks um, equally as amazing in different ways. Um, I, I, obviously, neither of us have it in hand yet. But um, how did the Graham Tome edition on Limited Run come about? Um, was that um, initiative from you, uh, initiative from Platonic? Um, kind of, can you kind of tell us how that happened? Um, that was okay. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'll just, I can't remember what I'm not supposed to say, so I'll just say everything. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, Limited Run, the reason that I initially wanted to do the Grand Tome, it was going to be part of the Kickstarter campaign as a potential unlockable. So like a a stretch goal sort of thing. And then we would unlock a tier, right? Because, um, and a lot of this um, was something I just wanted to do. I wanted to have this variant cover that kind of looked like one of the tomes from the game, but I didn't want that to be the the standard edition of the book, because I really wanted to do this very cool full color cover that had embossing and all the neat stuff. I was was, uh, feigning ignorance with this question a little bit. I did see that you had sent out a Kickstarter email with a concept render of the book as a grand tome and uh, looks strikingly similar. That's how that began. But, but, but the limited run thing, believe it or not, limited run actually came up during the Kickstarter campaign is if I can remember correctly. So it was either during or just after the Kickstarter campaign. So what, what basically happened was the, um, the sales numbers of the book, like I said, they were okay. They weren't as high as we were hoping. I think I had tried, I had hoped that we would reach about 3000 just given the popularity of ukulele. I thought that we could get, you know, the numbers up a little bit higher, but we ended up doing closer to around, I think 12, hundred at the time. And I think to date, it's been almost 1400 or 1500 just from additional sales. So from the Kickstarter perspective, if you have numbers like that, uh, that's all well and good, but then the cost of the book is very high. Right. And so, um, there's very little profit margin and I, I had spent like three years on this book. So I really had to make some money on it in order to keep moving. And, uh, so I had to figure out a way to get additional books, um, uh, made. And one of the ways to do that was to, um, you know, order more books with this print run. And so I thought, well, I can't just go and order more books that we're not going to sell to lose even more money. Um, so it, it caused me to reach out to, um, limited run and uh, uh amongst other um third-party sellers i think i reached out to fan gamer and they had a um they had a an offer but it wasn't as compelling uh as limited run limited runs is funny because they're so lucy just with their dealings like it just D- doug uh douglas uh who is one of the founders there um douglas bogart is he's so, he's hilarious he's hilarious to deal with because he he's just like okay i guess we could try that you know <laughs> like whenever you come up with he's like nah, i don't uh, like oh that sounds pretty cool i guess we'll do that and and i told him about ukulele and he said oh yeah ukulele the game did pretty well 
I guess we could give this book a try. And he said, tell you what, we'll order 500 of them. And I said, eh, why don't you order a thousand? <laughs> and he said, he said, you think that's a good idea? I said, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he said, and he said, okay, order a thousand. We'll give that a try. <laughs> so that's how that went. Um, and uh, they ended up ordering a thousand of this variant. And, and in order to save money, I had them all printed basically at the same time. So they have the same internal block, right? So it's essentially a variant cover edition. And that saves money because the most expensive process of producing a book is the, uh, the, are the plates uh, that you print the offset printing process on the pages, not to get too technical with it, but um, the internal block, the, the pages is, is the most expensive part. The, the cover can be very expensive depending on what you do. Now we use what's called a fabricoid cover, which is a, it's, it's essentially a, it's a polyvinyl, right? It's not a real leather, um, but it, it, it's very convincing. It was the most convincing of what they showed me. Uh, it's by the DuPont company. Um, and it's, it's neat stuff. It, it, it's, it's, it, I don't know. I think it's, I'm holding it. It's really cool. But yeah, it, it has a much more matte kind of premium feel, you know, from like the glossy cover of the normal one, which I think is cool for, as you said, camera, a totally different reason. Um, it, it, it feels premium in a flashy, um, pop sort of way. Um, but this one has a much classier kind of old school, like this, this book will fit on the shelf very nicely with like an Easton press collection, um, you know, of like the, you know, classic leather bound books, that sort of thing, but the gold foil stamping. Um, and, uh, it, it does have really nice debossing and things like that. Like the, uh, <clears throat> the, it's kind of hard to picture, pick up from the pictures, but the gold foil is debossed pretty intensely. So you can kind of feel it. Um, and the, the gold that they use is just awesome. <laughs> anyway, I'm talking up the book, but, uh, the, uh, the limited run thing just came together as a way to sort of drive the numbers up. It didn't end up benefiting <laughs> that much. Um, but we were able to get our print numbers up to 25 or I think it was like 2,600. I ended up printing. Um, but the variant cover turned out to be so expensive anyway, that it costs virtually the same. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so, um, but it's, that's what you get for using like the leather, uh, and everything. And actually gilded edges turned out to be so expensive in the States. Like that's something that is, it's not cheap in China, but in the States, it was like, I mean, just, just to give you numbers, like in China, it costs like 50 cents per book. In, at those numbers and in the states it costs like two dollars so like it cost me two dollars to add gilding to each copy um and it's like that man starts really eating up the cost and my poor poor uh broker who was working with uh jostens who had to put up with both jostens and me oh my god it, it he he ended up covering the cost. I think he he ate the cost i think he ended up losing like six thousand dollars on this job <clears throat> Like, uh, he didn't make any money. Um, but I did get him, I, I did get him lots of contacts <laughs> who, who printed books that actually made money for him. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, yeah, these are the hilarious stories of, of, of producing a, a low run of books where you're in, you insist on doing premium quality as if you're doing a much larger run. And they're like, you know, you don't do this kind of thing for a thousand run books. You, you do, 
you know, a thousand cheap soft covers, try to make some money, and then you do like a higher end printing later. I said, no, 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 you got it exactly backwards. Do the premium <laughs> one first and only, because who wants to make crap? And uh, and if you give people a softbound piece of junk, they'll never buy. They'll never get to like the hardcover because they don't like it to begin with. You know, and I mean, like it's it's got to be this premium all the way, and and. Anyway, I'm only telling you 10% of the, I haven't even gotten into the book manufacturing nightmares that came up, but it was, I, I, I'll tell you this. I had two instances of kidney stones, uh, <laughs> literally during the eight month period of, of printing these books, the stress levels were off the charts. So that it was easily the worst working experience of my life, but it was also the most, um, I guess it was the most satisfying in the end. <laughs> I, I guess you could call those kidney stones crackle stones. Although, <laughs> oh, oh man, well that's what they had to do. But yeah, with uh, with with Gavin, I, I I hit up Gavin and I told him, "Hey Gavin, I, I'm I have I have this kidney stone, and I won't get into the details, <laughs> but it was it was not a pleasant experience." And he uh, his response, you know, I expected I don't know why I expected this, but I expected Gavin would be like. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, and blah blah blah. And uh, he, <laughs> they were, they were working on Impossible Layer at the time. And Gavin had told me at some point that they were going to put me in the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, this ended up eventually becoming the B uh, thing that they did. Um, and uh, but at the time, I didn't know what it was. He just said that I was going to be in the game, and I thought, oh no. And uh, I told him about the kidney stones. He said, oh, good. Now we can turn you into like a stone character or something. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, that was going to be that was going to be my presence in the game is going to be a character who is stoned or something like that. Um, So anyway, uh, yeah, they they do next level puns over there. Well, if nothing else, I hope you save the kidney stones. That could be a future Kickstarter reward. You know the the hospitals stole those. I was I was going to make like a bracelet to give people for Christmas or something, but uh, the <laughs> hospital for some reason they 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 wanted to keep those stones. Uh, that's a shame. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, we obviously went over your your history, how you came to become involved with Platonic when you were first on the show three seasons ago. Uh, but you know, we both had the chance to actually read and, as I said, mentally digest the graphic novel now. And one of the staggering things to me, because I see myself, I, I view myself in my delusions of grandeur as the overzealous guardian of canon and continuity when, when it comes to the games I love, the games the DK Vine covers in our uh, ramshackle Donkey Kong journalism. But it, the, the thing that impressed me was the complete lack of errors when it comes to the lore and how it actually built on the existing ukulele canon. So I really am curious, as somebody who is almost as obsessive about this as I am the physical condition of my products, uh, what was that process like? You know, did Platonic provide you a Bible of of sorts of the the lore, or was it just a matter of trial and error? Like, you know, your your story of how Nimbo and Nimble were originally husband and wife until you were told <laughs> their actual relation, or was it just your own studious understanding of the property? 
Um, it was no, it was it was a ramshackle process of <clears throat> me showing platonic progress and then finding out all the problems with it. <laughs> and it was it was it's pretty much how it went because in the beginning it was it was a constant process of iteration. Uh, as new information came to light. And and I can't tell you how many times I, I kept like joke ripping on Gavin and, and Andy at the time, because I'm like, what, you, yeah, I'd be like, you, you, you didn't tell me. <laughs> like, I think one of the craziest examples of that was actually with Moody Mays Marsh. Cause I had in the book, there's fungicide forest, still one of my favorite names. Um, and um, it, that was originally a swamp. And I had not, I was not aware of the existence of the swamp in the game because I only knew about, uh, world one and two, uh, and, and two, I only knew very, very little on, basically I knew that two existed, but I hadn't seen it. Andy, when I first started the book, I asked Gavin, I said, Gavin, I need to, can you give me a build of the game or something? And, um, so I can check this out. And, you know, platonic is just as secretive and, and offhandsy as, as rare ever was if not worse <laughs> with their secrecy. Um, and I, I said, I, I, this is the case with everybody, of course, but you realize in order for me to make the book, I need, I need to know as much about the story in the game as possible. And I think it took about a month of coaxing to get Andy to give me like a 15 minute look. This is, I think in October or September of 2016. So about eight months prior to the launch of the game, he took me through a playthrough of the opening section so I could see Shipwreck Creek and kind of get a feel for the game. And he showed me inside Hybrid Towers. And I think he briefly showed me Tribal Stack. And <clears throat> so that was, I, you can imagine how excited I was on that call because I was seeing something that looked like another Banjo-Kazooie. And uh, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be a gold mine of 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 happiness when this game comes out and then they ended up giving me finally they ended up relenting and they gave me a build of the game and I, I like to brag and say that I was the first person to beat ukulele not only prior to launch but I completed it with every bug ever <laughs> uh, and it was it was a, an unbelievable joy for me like I, I could not tell you how much I enjoyed the experience and giving me the playthrough just immediately exposed like 90 errors with my story. <laughs> I mean, I, I learned about the swamp. I like, they didn't tell me anything. I just got the build. I started playing and I said, well, just play the game. <laughs> and I played it. And until I unlocked the swamp levels, like I didn't know what to expect. The, the swamp level um and a casino and a galaxy were not revealed to me so i i revealed them like i did as a kid playing badger kazooie if it weren't for the john lovitz video that spoiled everything <laughs> you know um <laughs> but it was like but still you remember what it was like i remember i remember getting that john lovitz video and uh i'm like is this john lovitz what is he doing um and uh yeah <laughs> but, but you remember when it showed click clock wood in the video and i thought well, that seems kind of lame. It's like, why is that the last level of the game? It's kind of sunny and foresty. And I thought, well, it's too similar to the swamp world. And it's it, it's too visually similar. But then when I played the game, I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> what an unbelievable masterpiece Click Clock Wood was. And mm -hmm. it was so different. And it was so climactic. But at the same time, it was so sunny and, and happy. And it had such a weird juxtaposition from what I was – anyway – 
I'm not going to get off on the tangent of why I love banjo kazooie, but <clears throat> the 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 point being, I explored ukulele without anyone in the world knowing anything about it, and it was like this pure exploratory bliss, packed, filled to the brim with bugs, and <clears throat> uh, it, it it just was not meant to be seen at this point. I got as far as I could in that playthrough, and then they gave me an updated build. Andy called me one day and he said, "Oh, <laughs> sorry, Dave." <laughs> Turns out I gave you the wrong build. <laughs> it was uh, filled from like a year ago. <laughs> and and they had a finished build of the game he had intended to give me. So I think I got like, I don't know, 70 pages in on as far as I could go. But when I got to like Galaxy, there was just nothing in the world. It was just, <clears throat> it was just like the opening island and the background. And picture this experience of getting into Galaxy, which is easily the most N64 reminiscent level in that game, as far as I'm concerned. It reminded me of finding the space world in Diddy Kong Racing, which was a magical experience as a kid, because I'm like, oh my God, it still goes on. There's more to this game, you know? It already had so much, and now here's a, a whole other world you know, on the moon. It's so neat, right? And Galaxy felt the same way, but there was nothing in it, just the hope of another world. And that was thrilling, to me uh, to hear the music it, you know grant had put the music in already and <clears throat> it was like I, I just i was so excited so then they gave me the correct <laughs> so i started over and that's the build i completed um like c finished everything and on 100 of the game um I, I don't think Yuka's underwear was in there yet, his pants, um, but <laughs> everything else. Um, and so I corrected everything that needed to be corrected. Everything from – that was another casual reminder from Andy. is like, oh, the nimble thing has to change because, uh, yeah, that's really weird what you've written. <laughs> uh, and, uh, <clears throat> yeah, there's just lots of marital argument jokes that I threw in there. And, um I, in my opinion, it was hilarious, but I think it probably just would have been too inappropriate. Uh, but anyway, so we, we changed that. That was one of many, many, many things. Um, there were little things like they would make these casual suggestions of things to change that weren't even necessary to change. Remember Andy making a stink because uh, Rupert, uh, <clears throat> his original name was uh, Fred. And I just thought it was so, such a, it was like the perfect, I like, like a one syllable name for a character like that just always cracked me up. And, uh, he said, well, make it sound more English. <laughs> and so he ended up changing it to Rupert, um, which, which was like at the time the most English sounding name I could come up with. And <clears throat> so little things like that. Gavin, I remember I would send him the, uh, uh, the bubble bomb bog section. And I thought, oh, he's going to have all these thoughts and suggestions. And he read through, you know, the first three pages or so. And he said, well, I just have one change request. And I said, oh, great. What's that? And he said, um, I think the joke could be funnier when Yuka sees the, the, the bug and is, is like salivating over it. Um, and he's like, he like came up with a line for Laylee to be like, at least put some moth dust on it. And, um, so that was his only change <laughs> was to make the joke funnier with Laylee. And so, um, that's how that kind of thing went. So there was a lot of just like moving forward on it and then tripping over myself to make changes, which is, you know, it causes a lot of production delays, you know, because I would go through and basically finish the art 
um, for a whole section and then find out, uh, you know, there's some problem with it. And I would have to go back and redo a lot of stuff. And as you can see in the final art, it's a rendered art style. It takes a very long time to do. Um, and so it was always very, very expensive to make any changes. So um, all in all, the communication was difficult. Um, and it was, it, you know, I asked for it, to be honest, because if you, if you know anything about uh, Classic Rare, which obviously you know a ton about Classic Rare, um, you know that they're very uh, trusting in people to take control of things uh, and do what they do well, which is why those games were so amazing, in my opinion. I, mm -hmm. People felt a sense of freedom and ownership in the creation process. And so um, the owners of the Stamper Brothers seemed to understand that inherently right from the beginning. They, they brought people in and said, if someone said, listen, I feel really strongly about this, they'd say, okay, go with it. But you have to make it work, you know, and then if it, if it works, then fine, we'll do it your way. And so they were extremely open. Now, when I hit up Platonic initially, I'm one of those pain in the butt people who wants to just do everything himself. Um, and I'm very independent. Um, I'd say that's my biggest flaw. <clears throat> um, I'm very selfish with, with the art creation process. And I told them this initially, and they immediately understood and they basically just let me go. They said, all right, write a story. And then if it's good, then we'll like it. It's like, um, you know, you figure out what you want to do. And then over time, they just got to the point where they trusted me enough with the content that they let me just do essentially a parallel development while they were working on the game. The trade-off uh, that I didn't understand at the time was that if you do give me a lot of freedom, it means that I'm not working very closely with the development team. So there would be a lot of changes that would have to come. And there would also be an understanding that this was kind of a, its own isolated story, you know, it, it because if I'm not um, working very closely with them, uh, then Cracklestone would always kind of be a sort of a strange parallel universe uh, development, but that worked out very well with the platonic universe because it, it has this concept of, worlds within worlds, you know, and uh, the grand tomes and everything. So um, it, it seemed to make sense. It could still sort of be a logical connection with uh, the ukulele universe without being directly, easily, linearly linked to uh, its position within the games. Yeah, I think to great effect. Uh, and that it's, it's fascinating, though, because it just from this side, um, from from this position of somebody who just read the final product, it all seems so effortless. And uh, to describe the process and the the torturous sort of back and forth along the way, the trial and error, uh, it doesn't come across at all. So uh, job yeah. well done. And also, you brought up on your first appearance on this podcast that you kept forgetting to include the goldfish in Dr. Puzz's bowl, who, of course, is very important to DK Vine and the conversation. So I just wanted to thank you. I checked. The goldfish <laughs> always appeared and was quite expressive and emotive as well, which uh, I, I just loved. So thank you for not forgetting that. Yeah, yeah, of course. The goldfish was hilarious because. Uh, the goldfish is just subject to Dr. Puzz's maniacal behavior. 
Um, and it was really funny to, to try and have a, it was actually kind of fun because it was like, I mean, it really is a second character, but it's also part of the first character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's almost like they share a brain. <laughs> so when Dr. Puzz would look in a particular direction, the goldfish would be matching. And then at the same time, what was the name of the fish? <coughs> Royston. <coughs> Royston. That's right. Okay. So, <laughs> See, I did not know the name of the fish. That's another thing that they didn't tell me, but I guess that's something that you came up with. But yeah, with um, with <laughs> something like with that, the, with the with the fish. But it was funny to also be able to break their brain connection as well. Like when Puzz went really nuts, you know, that the fish would be like, "Who is this crazy person I'm stuck here with?" Um, uh, so they would sync up as long as it was safe, and then when Puzz would go nuts, the fish would be. Um, terrified. I think there's one panel actually where uh, one of my favorites where she's firing these the like snot shots from Yuka um, at, when they're attacking the the burly uh, minions um, and uh, Yuka is just like a bloated um, collection of of phlegm. Um, and I'm trying to remember. I'm I'm opening the book here. Maybe I changed that actually. But I, I'm pretty sure there was one part where she was firing. Maybe it was the puzzler. The puzzler, yeah. I know there's oh, a yeah, specific yeah, yeah. panel I'm thinking of that is one of my favorites in the entire thing, where she is kind of like the got these like gleefully maniacal um, shark fangs for one panel. <laughs> the teeth, yeah, the teeth come out, yeah. Where she turns that panel. Where were her, her crazy teeth? There was the one with. Uh, I know I cut. Okay, yeah, that's that's the one when Yuka's firing the, the flame shots. Um, and, yeah, her teeth become like shark fangs. Um, yeah, the, <laughs> that was funny. There was a, there was a, the thing, the reason that I'm forgetting is because there's a lot of cut stuff that is sitting in my computer of just all the stuff that changed, even if it was just like slight expression changes. Um, and the, the, the shark teeth on her just this this whole attitude that she has um was funny because i i th- there's actually a really there's a lot of story depth um to that went into this uh because i i write um the way that i write um i use a system that i call the moral premise um <clears throat> and there's a there's a logic to it where you know you you want every character to have a similar journey throughout the story because it, it drives home the core idea a little more strongly. You know, you, you, the, the story is, um, well, I guess, we, I, you know, if, if that's something you wanted to get into, we could talk about the story, but uh, I, I tend to derail things a little bit. <laughs> no, go ahead. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, well, okay. So the, uh, the, the core concept, you know, behind the story was to play on the, the hero, um, challenge like I, you know you want it in order to make a story interesting a hero has to kind of get their butt kicked right and uh <clears throat> otherwise it's just like what's going on right with the story like why am i watching this character um and when you have a mario type of character which is what yuka is yuka link um banjo and uh, specifically banjo and not kazooie um mm-hmm. and yuka and not lately they're these kind of these like perfect um, hero characters. They really don't have any flaws. Their only flaws are when they fail as a player. So you as the player give them flaws because you're failing, right, as you go through the game. Um, 
And since a, a story, a book is, it does not have a player involvement. There had to be another way to add um, a challenge to the hero. But if you give the hero too much personality and too much challenge, um, you can really change their the the understanding for the player of what this character is. Um, and that's not always good because like Mario, if you start adding too much personality, it changes his, it changes him up quite a bit. So if you remember like Mario back in like the Super Mario Super Show days, um, you know, or like with the Nintendo comic system, Mario had a ton of personality that was added uh, for those particular productions, right? That went beyond the game because the games, he's kind of like a robot, like he, he doesn't have a lot of personality by design. Um, and so Yuka is kind of the same way. He, he's this perfect, caring uh, character that just wants to save the day and live his life happily. And, you know, and, and so how do you work with that? And I thought, well, that is his flaw. <laughs> the flaw is that he's too much of a perfect hero and uh, that he <clears throat> he tries to save the day always even when he's not capable of doing it. And that led to the understanding that really what it's about is a character is not accepting help from people. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition with the game itself, you know, where you as the player are tasked to save the day, so to speak. And uh, what if you just can't, right? And you, you remember when we talked before, I think one of the things that came up was how inspired I was by Donkey Kong Country series because the, mm. the Donkey Kong Country, th this book is, is at least as much Donkey Kong Country as it is ukulele in terms of the way it feels to me. Um, and the challenge worlds of Donkey Kong Country um, are, are what this world is supposed to feel like. Like it was a super challenging thing where everything is cruelly balanced to just go directly opposite of Yuka's main skill set. Um, it's like he has to, you'll notice how many parts of this story, the characters have to fly. Like it's a ton of them. Like he's got all these floating platforms and the dream shine. Sea. The, the, even the uncharted territory, which is something that you covered was designed to be essentially a bottomless pit. As far as <clears throat> the, um, uh, from the understanding of the reader, it's something that you would have to fly over. There is no, there's uh. literally no ground. And even in the, uh, the intro, which is a foreshadowing element for the story, the main thing that stops Yuka is falling, you know, and so there's a constant um, motif of Yuka falling on his butt. You know, it happens over and over and over again in the story. He keeps falling and it's funny, but there's a much deeper story reason for it is that's uh, something that Laylee could stop. Right. And Yuka does not accept help from anybody, including Laylee. Uh, he thinks of himself as a protector and he's got to do it his way. Uh, so even when he's the thing with the map, with trouser, he makes the decision alone. There, there's a lot of, um, uh, not the map. It used to be a map, <laughs> the key. Um, and the, the decision process for him is what ruins him. And the, the ultimate, I'm getting into obvious spoiler territory here. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, the main sort of moment of grace for him is when he is when Laylee gets pulled away, right? Because he needs Laylee in order to get over the moat uh, uh, for the Mount Zap Crackle. Is he can't do that? He physically can't do that without flight. So all throughout the story, he's hitting moment after moment after moment of it would help if I could fly, <laughs> uh, but it's okay. We can figure out how to get past this. And and 
when he loses Laylee, that's when he falls completely into, he just turns into a baby. Like he can't do anything now. And so it plays on the, uh, the friendship aspect of, you know, these buddy platformers where you really need your other half, uh, in order to complete the game. Uh, so when he goes over the, the moat to, for Mount Zakrak, or when he hits that moat, rather, Dr. Quack, uh, can get over that because he's got the, um, uh, the Puzzcopter. He's got the Quackcopter. Right? The, and, the original uh, Quackcopter. The, the original, uh, Yuka uh, cannot because he doesn't have Laylee. And the reason he doesn't have Laylee is because he didn't listen to her at Windy Peak Pass when she said, I can't handle this. This is too intense. Um, you know, s- bad things will happen if we go through here. And Yuka said, don't worry. We'll, you know, we'll, we're the heroes. We got to make this happen. And so that's what, th- that's the decision that causes them to break apart. Um, and now he's, he gets his butt really kicked, <laughs> but the, the, you know, the, you can see how this parallels with Dr. Quack because Quack and, uh, Quack, <laughs> call him Quack, Quack and, and capital B parallel Yuka and Laylee. So they're, they're the antagonist duo, right? Um, but Quack uh, betrays B, right? And uh, as a result of that, he loses. Because not only does he betray capital B, uh, but he betrays um, Dr. Puzz, right? He steals her invention. And he doesn't know how to fix it. <laughs> so uh, he loses the power of flight in the same way that Yuka does. Um, and that causes his destruction at the end. And Yuka, at the same time by humbling himself and getting down to save Laylee instead of going for the uh, crackle stone um, gets what he needs to get the crackle stone. So it's this really, it's a puzzle, you know, um, to figure out these mechanics and and why they're satisfying and, you know, what else helps him is, you know, even Rextro uh, who's not the, you know, He's not the smoothest poly in, in the uh, <laughs> what's what's come up with the phrase. He's he he he's a, he's a little sharp, rough around the edges. There we go. Uh, <laughs> you know, he ends up really saving the day, uh, kind of the most, and <laughs> in, in what I think is a hilarious scene um, because he's so innocent, he doesn't understand what he's doing. Uh, but, uh, if Yuka had accepted his help from the beginning, ironically, they probably would have reached the crackle stone because Rextra would just have run across the moat. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm, I'm getting so far into the depths of the story here, but just to kind of give you an idea of the thought process and how it, um, use not only trying to make a good story, but think deeply about, what it means to play the games and be a hero and a buddy platformer specifically and how to tie that into the only thing it could be if it was a book, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it like that was the I think most impressive thing about the plot for me was that it distilled the essence of being a video game yet still did so much more than a video game could by virtue of being a book so it's a tough balancing act you know but you i think i think you pulled it off pretty well thank you thank you the the you know one of my initial i guess the strongest pitch that i made to gavin initially and 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 also um Debbie Bestwick, who was the the head of Team Seventeen at the time, she was part of the the 
um, the, making that deal happen. Um, she, um, she's actually the reason that it could go to Kickstarter in the first place because they really did not want to take it to Kickstarter. But I just thought that was the easiest way for, well, we can get into those details later. But um, with with regard to um, the, that, uh, what, one of the strongest points of the initial pitch was that the book would be a you know would honor the game by being a parallel piece and kind of fill in the gaps in a way that the things that the games don't really do well. When I was at Insomniac, um, I was in cinematics production, so I would work on the movie sequences and videos. And the the irony of my job there, which is seven years of of me trying to cut cinematics, <laughs> um, because I I wanted to do more in game real time storytelling. Um, you know, games like Half Life Two did that very well, um, where you have um, these environmental uh, things that would encourage the player to look a, a certain way, but they could also choose to ignore it if they wanted to. That sort of dynamic storytelling in real time was very attractive to me, and so I was always trying to push for real time storytelling. Uh, but as long as we were working on cinematics, you know, I, I wasn't really able to do that. But I, I do think that um, rare, rare um, and platonic, they kind of understood that environmental storytelling to a greater degree. Uh, and so I thought, well, there's a certain type of storytelling that you get in the game, but really it's story playing. Whereas the book is, is a, is a, a, it's a linear, non-interactive medium that lets you elaborate in a way. So if you try to make the book too much like the game, it's going to be really lame, <laughs> you know, because you're, it's like, you couldn't make a book. If you made a book like based on Zelda, well, actually there was, there was a graphic novel based on link to the past. Right. So it took a very linear approach that kind of took the game elements of going from level to level, to level, to level, um, which worked very well in a game, but in a book, it's kind of repetitive and boring, right? It's like, okay, now we're going to the next level. And it just, it doesn't make sense in the story uh, as, as, as much. So rather than try and replicate what the game does well, the book should do what the game doesn't do well. And just by nature of the medium, that's all. And then you've, if you experience them together, and that happened actually more with Impossible Layer because of the timing of the book. But if you experience them together, they'll be much more satisfying. Uh, it, it will make the game better and the, the, the book will make, or the game will make the book better as well. Yeah, I think um, approaching the story from that standpoint um, was really successful. And I mean, as we discussed on our episode where we kind of gushed on it for several hours, um, I feel like it gave... Um, particularly Yuka, a lot of like depth and exploration that we wouldn't really get to see in a game by nature of what a game has to be, um, which uh, kind of goes into, um, we had a, a question from someone in our audience, uh, our DK Vine patron uh, T Fiztap. Um, they have asked, uh, which character did you have the most fun writing for? And uh, which characters did you have the most fun doing the art for? Um, let's see. I would say that definitely Laylee was a blast. Um, but I, I actually, <laughs> I wish I had written more of him of capital B because, you know, the funny thing is he, when I wrote the, I'm, I'm going to 
take a little bit of credit here. Okay. <laughs> so Andy could argue with me about this if he wants to, but um, when, when I was initially writing the story, one of the first characters that I <clears throat> tackled was capital B because I, I just was not aware of how he was written in the, in the game. I thought he was more of like an oafish sort of grunty, but male, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I wasn't aware of how he was written so I had this initial thought that he should speak literally using business jargon. Um, and that was the single funniest idea I had ever thought of. I, I, I could not stop laughing at the things I was writing because he would, it was, it's, it's kind of like that in the games too, but he's, he's a little bit, he is kind of a combo, right? He, he talks about business. Okay. And about his, his, uh, his evil plans or whatever, but in the book, he literally speaks using colloquialisms uh, as a language. So the idea that a character would say things like, um, um, you know, let's push the envelope, team, you know, um, or uh, it would say like, you know, action item, uh, whatever. But it'd be like, uh, you know, if you're in a large corporate environment, you'll hear things like action item all the time. And uh, when I was a kid, I remember my brother uh, uh, worked for a company where this his manager had said, you know, um, there's an action item I'd like to discuss with you. And my brother had said, I'll discuss that with you as long as you promise never to say action item ever again. <laughs> and, uh, so it just stuck with me and I'm like, how funny would it be if you had an evil character who would shout like action item, kill him, <laughs> you know, and it's just, he literally speaks using this like nonsense corporate jargon. I just, I, I still just crack up thinking about all the potential for that. Um, but by, by nature of the story, it really was more about quack, uh, being the, the main antagonist. And so capital B had to take a back seat. So I tried to squeeze as much of that in as I could during his scenes. Um, but that I could write capital B's business jargon forever. In fact, I formed a Twitter channel just because I could not stop, um, doing ca the capital B business jargon. And I have, um, he, he's like all in caps all the time. Uh, and he's just, he just like, doesn't use punctuation and he just, everything is just business. Uh, and it, it, that was a blast to do. So, um, and it, it, in fact, I had a, a other story pitch. Some of the story pitches that that had come up, uh, you know, there was there was one that involved the more. Um, I got to watch myself here. <laughs> there was one that involved more uh, interaction between Capital B and Doctor Quack in a direct way, um, and just the two of them um, going back and forth. It's it's absolute gold. Right. Um, but yeah, I would say that Laylee was my favorite in context with Yuga because uh, she was um, her her job in this story, because uh, Yuga is definitively the protagonist of the story. You know, I, that's another pitch, as, as a matter of fact, is a Laylee centric story. But Yuga is the protagonist of this one, which means that Laylee as his closest friend is the one who helps him um, the most with his uh uh, growth, um, which also means that she tests him the most uh, throughout the story. And she's a real, she is a real pain. Um, and I wanted to make sure that she was as annoying as possible. So there's literally like not, there's no moment in the story when Yuka doesn't say something that she doesn't make fun of. And he's got this um, very positive, um, like we can do it attitude um, that she just keeps chipping away at. 
<laughs> at every possible moment. Um, so I, I would say that figuring out and, and pretending to be both of those characters and like, okay, if I was as optimistic as Yuka and, you know, like trouser brings out the shorts. I can't believe you guys didn't talk about the shorts. The shorts, that was the, that's the biggest <laughs> banjo reference um, in there. Um, those are banjo shorts anyway. And they're all nasty. <laughs> they got like dirt on them and no one ever talked about the shorts. I, I, I like, I'm like, I'm like, can't believe like the, the yellow shorts, they got dirt and grime and everything. I'm like, this is the perfect play on the idea that banjo is dead. And trouser hats and shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my de- my default image in my head of Doctor Quack now is just that panel of him laughing maniacally with shorts wrapped around <laughs> the gumball machine. He wants the shorts. That's that's a Napoleon Dynamite reference, actually, because he had a when he's talking to uh, trouser and and he says, you know, if I um, you know if I buy the key, then the shorts are included. It's it's a reference to the sailboat scene from uh, uh, Napoleon Dynamite, because I, that one just cracked me up, that this guy's all excited about this model ship. I don't know if you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, but um, no, uh, the crickets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I thought everyone in the world saw Napoleon Dynamite, but anyway. Um, so no, but it's just, it's ridiculous that he's got these shorts. And and actually I thought about the shorts, the, the item that Trouser throws in for free and changed a few times. And I just, I, the shorts were the funniest. <clears throat> um, and I thought, how would Quack actually wear the shorts? Um, and uh, I, I think initially I tried to draw it so that they were like, they they looked like the bottom half of him was just wearing shorts. Um, but it just, there was no way to do it logically. So like one pant leg had, he just would stick the gumball machine through one pant leg. You don't even know how he would have done that. And the other pant leg is just flapping like in the breeze. So whenever he's flying around, it's like a terrible cape or something. And that <laughs> drawing those dirty shorts on Quack's gumball machine, which is already an absurd concept, was that was hilarious. Yeah, I'm, I just had to pull up the art because I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't make the connection. Uh, I've read through this probably three times now, and I never noticed that they were modeled after banjo shorts. Yeah, those never. are banjo shorts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I picked up on it, but for for whatever reason, it didn't occur to me to talk about it. it I'd rather spend half an hour on chocolate. The <laughs> <laughs> um. uh, anti-gravity chocolate? Um, Conker was one of my favorites uh, in the N64 days. Yeah. Um, so we we talked a little bit about um, how the the book um, ran parallel to ukulele itself being developed, and um, we we know that um, because you were very open about um, the circumstances of the of the book that like it only features characters up from the from the intro to the first world, which I wouldn't have picked up on if not for the fact that the development of the book was so transparent. But um, I know that means you didn't have a lot of information when you were um, crafting the bones of the story. Um, and having seen the whole of ukulele um, now, in hindsight, I, are there any characters or elements that show up much later in the game that you um, wish you could have put into the story or would love to put in a future story? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah. That, it, right. <clears throat> that's correct. And that's still kind of the case. It, the reason that, uh, there was so much iteration on the story. So as I learned about more, like when I finally played the game, um, a lot of the core story was already developed. And the problem is if you just throw things in willy nilly, you know, it, it, you can really offset the balance of the story because you don't add things only you, you, a, a story has, it's like, it's a box, right? And if you, you have a certain amount of space and you can fill it with whatever you want. It, it doesn't just make the box bigger because you threw another character in. It actually takes away something else. So you have to you have to balance it very carefully. So the story was constructed carefully around the existing characters that I had thought of at the time to use based on their existence. Uh, and I, I threw in as many as I knew about. So every character that I knew about made its way into the game. The only exception to that was the uh, were, were the pigs. Um, and uh, just because yeah. like, I could not... Um, think of a logical way to use them in this story. That's okay. Um, Nobody cares about the pigs. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also left out Vendi intentionally. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I, yeah, Vendi is just it would would curse the book. I, I'm pretty sure that it would just never have gotten printed. I think the printers would look at it and say, "Look at what we've done." I, and, I, I was I'm not embossing that on the cover. <laughs> I was going to try to feign outrage over the lack of Vendi, but honestly, I, I do like that Vendi is absent from something just like Retro and, and Dr. Quack did not factor into Impossible Lair. But I like how prominent they were here as a result. So I like when characters uh, show up and don't show up, and it's always a surprise who you're going to see. Yeah. Um, I mean, Claire is not here either, but I'm also like, I'm glad we get as many faces as we do in this book, but it also doesn't feel like just a a character parade mm, where they mm-hmm. show up just to show up. Right. Right, right. There was one character that I really like and I really wanted to work with, um, but it just did not make sense in the story. And further... I had a few ideas, but Platonic actually specifically requested that I don't work with this character. And that was Shell the Space Witch. Um, uh, and uh. I really wanted to work with Shell. Um, and um, I believe it or not, I had actually pitched doing a Shell uh, story <laughs> on its own. Um, and I just like the character so much. But, you know, because the character is not, th- there would be so much definition that I would be doing outside like i think with ukulele they were okay with that but i think if i were to go and take a character like shell that was not defined um you know that 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 might be something that they they just would say okay well you know this character's too undefined at this point we can't really write a story because then that will make her that'll define what she is so you know it went a little bit outside the realm of what they were willing to allow for that so shell is definitively the character that i i, I instantly like shell um and uh I, I my mind filled with a million ideas of how to work with her um but uh I, it was not to be for this book yeah her character design is very fun and uh your interpretation of her specifically i think in some promotional uh, character art you did for the campaign made me really excited about the idea of like you doing something with that character Oh man, I would love it. Yeah, you, you know, I that was uh, actually one of the uh, custom art pieces someone had requested Shell because I, as the option for doing an original piece of art, um, you you know you could pick 
one character from ukulele and well shell is a part of ukulele so um somebody picked shell and so i was happy they did so i could I, i'd have a, an excuse to go in and draw the character did anyone pick bendy <laughs> strangely <laughs> enough strangely enough nobody picked bendy oh oh i i should have i should have backed at that tier damn it it what would be really funny is if everybody picked bendy <laughs> <laughs> Everybody picks Vendy as the uh, my my pilot that I'm trying to pitch to CBS right now, but nice. <laughs> they're, they're they're not they're not biting. Yeah, probably because of Vendy. <laughs> like, oh my, well, what is this thing? <laughs> poor poor Kevin. Mm. I believe she's she's his fault. <laughs> yeah, we did not bring up Vendy when he was on the show a couple weeks back. But but but, uh, but show is also his, so you, <laughs> you bring what you bring into the world. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I I, I do remember talking to 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 Kev Bayless um, during the initial production because he was he was just starting to put together uh, what would become Salamando. He, he had these ideas for doing comics and um and you know because i was doing this in parallel uh uh you know he wanted to have some conversations about that that was really neat um so yeah with uh i remember talking to him about shell at the time and i'm like oh this is a really cool design it'd be a lot of fun to work with this um so yeah kev, kev certainly has a lot of uh, character variety yep yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's one way one way of putting it Diddy so, Kong and and Bendy and Bendy and Shell. <laughs> so, so we talked about all the the characters um, we saw um, who are from Ukulele itself, but um, there's also a lot of new characters um, created for the book, um, like uh, aforementioned uh, Rupert the Pantsless. Um, <laughs> the uh the giant worm um the um fairy who is just incredibly frustrated with overhearing all of you Lily's puns <laughs> um mush muncher who i that stood out to me because um you name dropped him in one of the kickstarter emails and in preparation for this email i mean a uh, preparation for this interview i was looking back through all my stuff i realized i don't recognize that character um, he shows up in one background panel. Yeah, <laughs> but he he's but he has not, a dedicated name, much. dedicated yeah, design, yeah. and I I love that. And I just kind of wanted to pry um, what sort of um, considerations and uh, you know potentially um, commentary from Platonic went into um, introducing all these uh, new faces slash uh, farty butts into the world of ukulele. <laughs> well, they were especially approved. Uh, they especially approved all the fart jokes. That was they were very proud of that. In fact, I remember having a conversation with Daly, um, and a number of conversations with Daly about um, various things involving the project. And I, there was there is the part where um, Laylee is gets a little too um, excited with the snacks overnight, and um she i i just i didn't really think this through but i just thought that she should just kind of be like this inflated ball um uh, like literally an inflated ball because she had just gorged herself on all this stuff and then in the morning she i needed her to get back to her normal shape um and 
you know, that before I had thought of something as, as, as simplistically crude as her literally just farting, um, it, it was like, it, there was a little more thought that went into it. And I was going to consider that she was going, like Yuka was going to make her like fly extensively, uh, you know, until she just lost all the weight. <laughs> um, there was a lot of stuff, but all of it took a fair amount of time in the story. And I didn't want to um, spend that much time on it. And so I just did what I did with a lot of things with the story, which is think back and try to imagine what Rare would have done um, with some of the stuff. And I just thought that was just the most appropriate thing. And there was a point at which I had put the, the fart bubble in, which took a long time to draw, by the way. And um, <laughs> she, which is part of the humor. The humor is that it is this, um, you know, beautifully rendered fart cloud. And I remember hitting up daily before we actually went to print. And I said, I'm a little nervous about the fart cloud. Should we take that out? I was going to re either replace it with like a burp. No, no, that's what it was. Somebody at Platonic, and I can't remember who it was, had said to me, like I said, I'm a little worried about the fart cloud. I think it's too crude. And he said to me, why did you not consider a burp? <laughs> and it just occurred to me that I, I hadn't even considered the possibility that she would burp, um, which was very funny. But I, I, had, I thought that a, an alternate option, I actually drew an alternate panel where she just sort of pops as though ma magically like back into shape. Um, and, uh, um, it was certainly not as funny. And I, I hit up daily and I'll never forget what she said. Cause <laughs> I said, I said, I'm trying to decide between this fart cloud and like that she magically transforms back into her normal shape. And daily just responded, I vote fart. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's why it's in there. So you can blame her. Uh, cause that, that's, that's why it's stuck in the story. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of that kind of thing. But yeah, with the story, as far as like Platonic reacting to the new characters, um, it was it was all very. Um, I'm not going to say it was it was a simple process with them, but I think they just kind of. I think I had to earn their trust early on, and once that happened, I think they realized that okay, this is what the story is. This story is somebody who grew up with rare games. Um, you know, is an, is an artist and is wants to make this book and um, we're going to kind of let him have the freedom to make what he wants, you know? And I, um, I think they just understood that that was how to let it develop and become the best thing that it, that it could be rather than trying to provide too much oversight. But the oversight also was a little um, lacking um, intentionally because they were so focused they're a very single track um, minded um, studio in the sense that they, when they set forward to make a game, that's what they do. I mean, some of my initial pitches with Gavin were kind of complex. They involved studio involvement and there was going to be more um, from them. And he just said, look, we, you know, this is not what we do. We can't get involved. We are working on ukulele. That's it. The game. So you can work on the book, but we can't really help you with it, you know? And so that was the trade-off. <clears throat> and so th they they were okay with a lot of these developments. I, I showed them all the characters as they were developing so that they they watched the development happen. Um, and I kept thinking, again, this is very early when most of those characters were developed, like Rupert and, and the Mush Muncher and all that. Um, 
So they, they really are more of a Donkey Kong country reference than a ukulele reference. Um, and so there was, uh, there was a little bit more of me just kind of remembering opening the Super NES strategy or uh, manuals and seeing the character. I think they did that right with the, the Super NES manuals. But they had the yeah. characters. Uh, pictures yeah, um, and names. I know there's like memorably one that I remember as a kid from the DKC2 manual where the description of Cutlass the Kremlin is that he ordered swords off of a like television um, <laughs> call in. Yeah. And they ended up much bigger in person when he got them because he only owned a small TV. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was they were designed to have that reference to the gayness where you would see the characters in the manual. Like I actually, one of the, the games I remember doing this most, I, I think I probably, I think it stands out the most in my mind is Metroid two on the game boy, because that manual, I actually, I love the character, like the enemy descriptions. Um, they had some really creative enemy drawings in that manual. Um, and, uh, you know, they were, remember this is on the game boy. So it was very simplistic graphically within the game. So seeing the detailed drawings, was amazing. And uh, I remember redrawing them and all of that, but there were some, it took me so long to get through that game as a kid. I, I got so lost. I did end up beating it, but it took me like a year um, of, of trying on and off. And so there were some enemies in the manual that I never, I like it took me forever to get to, but I remember this distinct thing, and this is just not something that we really seem to experience anymore in games, is seeing the, the threat of the enemies that you will experience yes. fighting mm. and then uh, finding them in the game being like, Oh, that's the one from the manual, you know? Uh, oh, I, you know, so I remember that being the case with the like Omega Metroid, um, which is like the fourth stage of the, of the four within the game. Uh, and just seeing the drawing of like the Omega Metroid. I remember fighting the Gamma Metroid, which is the second one. And it, like kicking my butt over and over again and thinking, how am I ever going to beat the Omega Metroid when I come up to it, you know? And so when I reached it in the game, it was this really intense experience because I had been waiting to reach this monster. Um, and so the things like the mush muncher are, are, are kind of a reference to that where you would see, there's a reason that I put those character drawings in the Kickstarter is to kind of entice and say, hey, look, these are the characters you're going to experience within the story. Because that re reminded me of being a kid playing Metroid. And then when you read the book and you you find the characters, even if they have a very small part, um, you're like, oh, that's the thing from the you know from the manual, or whatever. And so with the the Mush Muncher, one of the funny things about these characters is they do come up quickly and they're brief because the nature of the world is such that it's this peach this um, like patchwork. Um, assembly of rejected game concepts that's the idea of it <laughs> which is why it's a toilet world right they had flushed all the bad <laughs> concepts and so um so everything in there was just a rejection um so right from the start the story is making fun of itself and in the worst possible ways that the entire world is just rejection uh and failure you know and so when they get into the world um and why were they rejected? Because they're too challenging, <laughs> you know, um, or stupid, you know. So you have characters like the Mush Muncher, which is he, he only has like a two panel presence. You see like the eyes and the swamp. Um, uh, when it was a swamp, it was a little more um, it was a little different. But when I found out about Moody, Moody Maze, Moody Maze Marsh, every every uh, uh, name is uh, a, a, a tongue twister. Um, you would 
and see them a, a little bit more prominently. So when we changed it to fungicide forest, th their role actually reduced a little bit. Um, but you still see them like uh, the fun thing about them is that their eyes poke up. Like first you just see them as mushroom caps that glow and then the eyes pop up and then you'd see them, you know, come out of the, the muck and then they would attack, right? If they were an enemy in a game, that would be how they would work. So like a level would start with just the, the mushroom caps and then you would start to see the eyes if you were paying attention, you know, mm -hmm. and then they would be. So there was a lot of thought that went into how that particular enemy would interact with the, uh, the player. But um, because it's a book, you're only seeing a hint of it. So one of the things that's fun about that character, as well as a lot of these characters, is that I want the reader to start imagining their own world with those characters, you know, just like because Platonic has set up this amazing thing. This is one of the first things I learned about Platonic was that they were they they wanted to think about um, the, these worlds within worlds concept, right? And so there was always this this idea that maybe the book is like a parallel tome itself, you know, hence the grand tome edition, right? Um, so there, there's this parallel universe, right? And so things can exist that only pop up briefly, but maybe they have a whole other tome, you know, that's dealing with those characters, you know? So maybe the mush muncher has a much more prominent role in another story. So that's the fun of the world within a world concept, the kind of metaphysical nature of these stories and i think one of the reasons that platonic was very offhanded with this because in a way this was like the comic universe you know for mm -hmm. platonic it's different it's it's different from the main line uh you know you can't go into ukulele and find the basement um as frustrating as that is <laughs> um but in the book i also don't lie about the things that are in ivory towers right now um, cause you can see the beginning of Hybrid Towers in the book, like the first two areas, um, you know, where they walk in that main room and then there's like that platform and that's mm -hmm. where they're doing the, the nose picking contest game show as they do. And, uh, then you don't really see where it connects to the basement. So there's no, there's no lies there. So if you play the game, it's like, if you read the book and then you played the game, you'd be like, Oh, this is the part that was in the book, you know, and vice versa. Um, but the book does deviate and introduces concepts that, uh, are absolutely not in the game, but they help it become more fruitful as a result of that. Speaking of, you know, your own characters and the worlds within worlds, can we get a name and or a full-fledged spinoff story for that annoyed fairy? Because it was just one panel, but it was very <laughs> evocative and it made me want to know more about this character. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you ask that because that character is a direct reference to Dreamside, which is my... Uh, That's what I thought. I I thought that, but I, I wasn't sure, uh, yeah. <laughs> hence me bringing it up in the interview. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, there is not only is there a spinoff story, there are four spinoff stories because it's a four-part book series that's the most epic thing that's ever going to be made ever. Um, and it's this – it's this – it's a I, – I like to call it a uh, – it, it's almost like the never-ending story with a medical theme. Um, in the sense that you have a character that goes into a fantasy world um, who is stuck in a hospital with a, a form of cancer. And this girl experiences this fantasy world uh, and meets this mysterious girl uh, uh, who looks to be about her own age and in this fantasy world and they become good friends. And that character is very fairy-like. Um, and so the, the visual appearance of that fairy is like a ukulele 
cracklestone interpretation of this dream girl character from uh, Dreamside. So I like to put in some references like that. I thought that was a very rare thing to do. Yes, and and now I it it definitely increases. I was going to check it out anyway after Cracklestone, but now I feel like I am obligated to continue the story into Dreamside and see what happens with this fairy. Um, Does that mean that I have one customer? Yes. Excellent. Congratulations. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Thank you. I'll spend years now. (laughs) So I was wondering, you you heard our last episode where we discussed um, our interpretation of the plot. Of ukulele. It was, the, it was the best thing. It was the best thing I've ever heard. Oh well, uh, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, <laughs> how would you rate our assessment of Cracklestone's plot? Because specifically, Trouser, uh, you know, uh, you know, Doctor Quack is on the surface level the main antagonist of the story. Uh, which, which, by the way, I do love that you went with Quack as the main antagonist and not Capital B. I thought that was a, a great uh, touch. However, when you really break it down, it's Trouser who is the, I, I don't want to say phantom menace, but, you know, uh, the sort of sort of the, the shadowy figure who's kind of manipulated events. Um, so, you know, our, our idea was, did, did Trouser come up with this grand home itself? Um, it's, it's kind of left to our interpretation, but that is my interpretation. But I wanted to hear the actual author speak to that. Well, um, I can half answer that. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it starts to get into a little bit of territory that it's strange because it's uh, it, it starts to kind of dip into elements of platonic that – they wouldn't want me to talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. what, what I would say is re- with regard to trouser. Yes. I, I, I think you're, you're dead on the money. And I can tell you that uh, he, uh, uh, the original uh, story version was, was different and made that much clearer. Um, and, and because the, the, the original uh, idea was that trouser was selling a map to a a new grand tome and it was this mishmash like preschool drawn world <laughs> that was just like cobbled together and um everything just looked so crude and like it's almost like if you had a house that wasn't built well and things start falling apart that would oh, happen you mean my like, house yes <laughs> <laughs> well you gotta stop buying from trouser yeah, um, tra- trousers, uh, trousers construction. Um, yeah, he 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 sort of would like sell this map, and initially, when you got into the world, it was like like a ch- if you saw a tree, it would suddenly like fall apart, it, like like branches would be nailed into the trunk uh, or something like that, and badly um, using rusty nails, and the trunk was like made of some like artificial wood. <laughs> so everything about it was just like thrift store, um, just cobbled together of junk. Right. And the artifact that he was selling wasn't a, um, or rather that is at Mount Zab crackle. Wasn't the crackle stone. That was a newer creation. Actually. Uh, it was originally a, uh, like a piece of, 
legendary parchment that had a um, uh, how did I put it? It had like a magic spell on it that would make you invincible, right? And so the idea was if you had collected the the magical parchment, then you would turn invincible, right? And uh, so it was the same kind of setup in that he was selling this map. So I ended up getting rid of the map because it was ruining a core story element, which is that they get lost because of Yuka's bad decision-making. Um, and the map would actually write their way. It was also a play on, I cut the map right when people started complaining about the lack of map in ukulele <laughs> because it's one of the things i most loved about the game is that i could get lost and i had to use my i had to remember uh uh what where things were and that made me more engaged with the game this is we could get on a whole talk about maps versus non-maps and when they make sense but what, one of the things that that i really loved about ukulele which actually came out roughly the same time as breath of the wild um is that it really did let you get lost. Um, you could easily recover by just exiting the level, but you could get lost. And that's one of the things I loved about it because I really wanted to peek around every corner and find every hidden thing. And when you have a map that has an objective marker, um, you pay more attention to the objective marker and you're kind of on autopilot moving toward it, which I found was happening a lot with Breath of the Wild. And so I'm not taking in a lot of the world because I don't have to, you know, it's like the objective marker is always going to tell me where to go. And what I loved about ukulele is I didn't have that. If I saw something, some point of interest, like one of the snowmen, you know, in level two, right. I had to remember where that snowman was. And if I forgot, I had to go on an adventure again, <laughs> find a snowman at when it made, when it was important to do so. Uh, and that's part of what made that game magical to me. So I was very confused about people's objections to the, um, the lack of map, which I saw is actually kind of a strange positive. So my way of, of, um, being a smart, um, uh, smarty pants, uh, to deal with that was to cut the map actually <laughs> altogether from ukulele and the crackle stone and have it be kind of a play on that concept that, they're, they have no map, and they're in this impossibly large tome world that they can't really escape from. Um, so <clears throat> when they find the uh, artifact <laughs> at the end, which actually played out in a very similar way, it, it turns out to um, it turned out to be a uh, a coupon for Trousers Store, <laughs> and it was like a two percent discount. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, it was it was it was easily my favorite gag in the story because it was the last thing that you saw in the book, where like they would they got the thing and they had to escape. It was a lot of action. They had to like grab the artifact and run, and then finally they had peace and they're like, okay, let's check this thing out. And they opened it up, and the last page of the book, literally the last page, was a close up of the coupon. You know, with trouser, it's like crudely drawn. It's like you win. Uh, I, Something like, you know, you have invincible savings or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I, I think maybe I changed it from invincibility to something else. Uh, it was like um, some kind of superpower or something. It was like the power of savings, you know. And so it was very clear cut that Trouser had put the coupon there um, as, as a way of getting people to buy these maps that he had produced like a gajillion of, but always said there was only one. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, was also kind of a play on the Kickstarter um, 
the nature of Kickstarter with limited everything. And I'm just like, you know, I can just reproduce these books unless I say I'm not going to. So it's kind of like, there's just something fun there about how Trouser would use the sleaziest tactics possible to, to sell these maps. And it's like, if he told everyone that they're literally like photocopies, that was the other thing too, that he had like just gotten a bunch of photocopies made. Um, and he was selling them for like all these quills. And there was a running gag with the story that you would keep seeing other characters with a photocopy of the map. Mm-hmm. And, and th- that came up even more than I had in the final book. It was a shame to cut that. I had, there was like, a there was a scene with a vending machine in the desert um, that had the maps. <laughs> like, was like, well, if it's a vending a, machine, that would open up a whole nother problem because you would have to use Vendy. I'd have to use Vendy, but that's, and that's another reason I cut it. Yeah, because it was literally <laughs> an old school, just crap vending machine. And it had, it was just littered with trousers maps. It had like, and it was called like trousers, one of a kind map. <laughs> and there's like 50, 50 of them in there. And that's right after like Nimbo had one and Nimble had one. And uh, Dr. Puzz had one. Like everybody had the map. I think I had the, the Bombly bug queen had a map like in the nest. <laughs> um, and so everybody had this map. <laughs> that trouser had sold them and it was it was it was easily the funniest part of the story that the whole thing just got cut because uh, we changed it you know to be a more sensible artifact like the crackle stone and i think part of my secret wish is that platonic would put the crackle stone in a future game you know and and that there it would be like an actual invincibility artifact but it wouldn't work like yeah, it's all, like it's I, be I love the the note of ambiguity the story ends on where like you you I kind of steeled myself like in preparation like, oh, they're going to get this thing and it's going to be like a light up Burger King toy or <laughs> something. But there's this ambiguity of you don't even know if it works because they don't they need batteries for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it would be very funny if they got the batteries and it did actually work. So yeah, leaving that open was a lot of fun. And uh, I think I, I'm, I, I don't know, I never checked with Gavin, but I, I could I could swear that they, they, I had pushed them to put Cracklestone in an impossible layer, put the Cracklestone in an impossible layer. I said, just make it like in a garbage pile at like Shipwreck Creek. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be like, it's not, it's just sitting there in a pile of junk and it's got like the battery compartment open, you know, and um I, I I thought I sensed a reference to it when Trouser gives you the fourth slot, but it's a fake slot. Um, because I'm like, that is just fantastic. When you get, you know what I'm talking about when you get the yeah. fourth slot. Yeah, it gives you a fourth slot, but it also takes up that fourth slot. <laughs> so the slot to use to open up the extra slot. It, it's that's the kind of, <laughs> oh, that's the kind of stuff I love. Uh, and anyway, so yeah, the same thing with the crackle stone. It just needed to become like an artifact. And it was just, there was something so, you know, when you're working on a story a little too long, you start to overthink a lot of this stuff. And now it seems kind of silly, but I think I just thought that the paper, it it didn't seem cool enough to get everyone fighting over it, you know, but the crackle stone, it's like a physical thing. It's got a lightning bolt through it. It just, it looks like a treasure that you need to find. Um, And so I just needed something a little more visually striking than a piece of paper, um, you know, that's rolled up, even if it's shiny and golden or whatever. So that's why I ended up cutting that. But that made it really clear that Trouser was involved. As far as the Cracklestone is concerned, that sort of changed 
But one of the things that that uh, I also changed that was going to be in the story, and I don't know, maybe this is the thing I, I, I hate having cut the most, but I just ran out of time, uh, is that the, the Mount Zapcracker was going to be like an amusement park um, that was centered around um, the Cracklestone as like a, 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 like it was like the world's most dangerous amusement park. And I thought that was hilarious that they would have like a field trip of like kids would come to like Mount Zap Crackle. Like I could, like there's nothing more stupidly dangerous than an active volcano. That's also littered with like electricity and would shock you like, and, and kids are just going there to like, you know, have this day. So I had rides and I had, there was like a roller coaster that went through the, the interior of the volcano and the whole scene with Dr. Quack, when he's having his monologue, I swear it was like 10 times funnier because he was shouting his monologue, but no one could hear him because of all the rides. And it was just, he was just like drowned out by screaming kids on like this roller coaster that would go in and out of these tunnels. So there, there are little hints of the, remnants of that because there still is like the the entry path um so instead of it being like an active amusement park i turned it into like a pathetic dying attraction um that still has like hints of what was there like there's a gift shop <laughs> and there still are there's still like a single bus coming with the uh with kids um but I got to keep the breadcrumb joke in, which is a reference to the first ukulele, uh, you know, where they, they throw breadcrumbs at Dr. Quack while he's monologuing like a Bond villain. Um, and I, 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 still, <laughs> I love that. Also, that kid is, whose name Joshua is a reference to Gavin's son. Oh. He, wanted, oh. he, wanted, he wanted his son in there somewhere. That was his only – that was actually his only request. He, <laughs> I think Phoebe uh, is his daughter's name and uh, – Joshua was his son's name. So I say, oh, I got to put Joshua in there somewhere. I also had a reference to Debbie Bestwick in there. Um, that the teacher who's wrangling up all of the, um, the minion kids was named Mrs. Bestwick. Um, but I changed that because I thought she might be offended if I made her into this like <laughs> kind of ogre like minion teacher wrangling up a bunch of minions. <laughs> corporates rather uh anyway so that got cut um my only gripe with the story is what is your problem with new age auto harp tunes <laughs> <laughs> they're just as relaxing as a foot bath and so for lately <laughs> to have a problem with one and not the other strikes that, me as disingenuous that, that's me poking fun at, at Mr. Wise. Um, I, I, <laughs> I was going to say, because the only reason that genre appeals to me at all is because I was brought up on the music of David Wise. <laughs> so I read that and I was like, oh, that's a that's a slam on me. Wait a second. That's a slam on all of us. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, you, you and I could 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 probably argue forever about who's a bigger Dave Wise fan. Um, <laughs> and and I, I listen, I literally listen to David's music while working on this book. I'd probably better than sixty to seventy percent of the time I was working because I was always trying to reference Donkey Kong Country, and nothing really put me in the mood quite like Wise's music. And good good thing there's a lot of it too, you know. Um, so I was able to kind of not 
r- repeat it too much. But if I if I needed a scene that was a little more atmospheric, I'd, I'd just put on like aquatic ambience on like endless repeat. Um, and if I was trying to go for something that was a little more action oriented, I would, I created like these little playlists of his tunes, um, to just try and help me get not only motivated, but also into the right vibe. And it's funny. It, it does, it locks you in when you're working as an artist. It's very easy to get, to deviate from a certain vibe that you're trying to keep consistent, but the music would bring me back, um, Mm -hmm. and make sure that it, it felt on model, so to speak. So with, um, at least consistent throughout the story. So, so you know, I, I, I mean, I love David Wise. I absolutely love David Wise. I love his music, and um, he's, he, you know, he's, he's, he was such, he's a kind, just generous person with his time. And um, so, I uh, naturally, my course of action was to immediately make fun of him in the story <laughs> because that's how I show affection in this world. But th- that's also, I mean, there's lots of references to uh, Grant. I-, I mean, at the very end, I-, I can't, I can't remember what the joke was with Grant, but I put there's some joke in there with him. Um, oh, I think it's, I think it might be when capital B is like, get somebody cheap um, uh, to like compose the music or something. Uh, and uh, I, I remember that being funny because Grant is, 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 is not terribly cheap. <laughs> no, neither is David Wise, uh, uh, from what I remember. But uh, 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 I think I threw that joke in there because uh, Platonic had announced that they were getting some in-house composers for uh, Impossible Layer. And I remember that being a, a just I, in my mind, I thought that was kind of funny that they're like, well, we, we don't need to pay Dave and Grant all this money. We're just going to have the people in-house work on this stuff. Anyway, ter- terrible jokes. Terrible oh, jokes. I, ha- I have the line. Uh, somebody get the guy who did that, the irritating tune that endlessly repeats on our inter- intercom system. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. Get me a composer, somebody cheap. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah poor Grant. that's um, that's also that's also the first instance we have the first notion of that uh Ivory towers theme actually playing in canon um yes yes yeah. that's that's playing in the like they have to listen to it all day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, like, it's not just the players yes all the corporates are stuck there just listening endlessly which of course makes you wonder about that right with all these games like in banjo kazooie does every level like do they just hear the music over and over again forever and ever would that make them insane and I thought, well, probably not, honestly, because I listened to Dave Wise music like 70% of the three-year time frame of working on this book, and it just never got tiring. <laughs> I, I still do it now with uh, with Dreamside because, uh, um, you know, I had there's a with Dreamside, like if you want the vibe of Dreamside, it's just Stickerbush Symphony. That's what Dreamside is. Like that's what it feels like. It, it's the visual representation of that song. And I, I told that to Dave so, so, uh, a number of times. Uh, I talked to him about the logic of that song and what he was thinking and trying to get behind. Dave talks in the most technical, boring jargon ever. And I, I was—I remember when I talked to him first about that, and he's like, oh, yeah, I was working on a series of single cycle waveforms and trying to figure out how to do an arpeggiated note. And I'm like, no, Dave there's gotta be how did you compose something that has so much unbelievable impact on the world shakes people's yeah. hearts 
at the, 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 the first 10 seconds and somehow all you are talking about is the technical makeup on the super NES sound chip. Like right. and that's, I don't know if he's messing with me and the rest of I the like talking, talking with him for as little as I have, but I don't think he, he like realizes, especially that song, which, you know, he'll dismiss as it was for a water level that we didn't use. And they just stuck it on the brambles uh, near the end. And it's like, no, that song perfectly conveys the, both the beauty and the danger of nature and the fragility of life itself and, and how we're, no, it's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's completely. It's just the thing, it's just the thing I made to test a water level. <laughs> it, it, and it's, it is astonishing. I, I, when I first talked to him about that, I did not understand. And I just thought, well, because initially, I think the first time I talked to him was on Facebook and I Facebook message. So you have a text interaction and I thought maybe he just wasn't understanding what I was asking. And, uh, but, but no, I, I mean, it, it is very funny talking to Dave and, and, and I, I have talked to him since, um, just unrelated conversations, but it was, it was, uh, that came up a number of times. And I asked him about, you know, what was your state of mind when you're there? And he's like, well, when I was working, <laughs> I don't know if he told you this, but it's like, it's like when I was working in the Donkey Kong music, it's like, I was in this like dark room, you know, with, uh, like in one of the stables, you know, and, uh, at the rare headquarters at the time. And it was like this dark like dungeon like room that he was in. And it's like, so maybe that had something to do with the atmosphere of it, you know, cause it was, it, it, it was not like a sunny, you know, cheerful uh, environment. Um, and then there's a juxtaposition there. So who knows, but anyway, not, not to get off on a sidetrack, but, but it was, he was very, very influential to me um, because I'm very, uh, very, very inspired by music when I work. Um, and, uh, Cameron can attest to this, I'm sure, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, absolutely. It helps me maintain my sanity. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps encourage depending on the mood, you know, sometimes I can over listen if I work for too long, a period of time and my ears get tired and whatever, and I take out my headphones. But then if I'm in the middle of a piece and I start to f- really feel, um, the, uh, the energy kick in, like, a, I start to really, you know, there's a, it's an indescribable sensation of excitement that you get when you have a piece that's just really working. And then I, I stop and I go find the right music to motivate what I'm doing. And that's when it just, that's when what, what's the thing from Dragon Ball Z when he powers up (laughs) the, 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 the super Saiyan thing kicks in, you know, and it's just like, okay, all right, the right music, the right, the right approach. This piece is going to rock. And that's when the best stuff comes out. And I would say with Cracklestone that happened listening to both Grant and Dave's music. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was an amazing experience in the way it would influence the work. Well, we've kept you here way, way past uh, our bedtime. Uh, we <laughs> probably because we talked close to 40 minutes about the binding alone so for that i apologize <laughs> thank you for being a good sport uh, no, no, no. before we let you go you know you've got your own projects and and ips in the works for dream prism specifically dream side uh but you know you are now part of the broader platonic rare family and as such you've got to be pestered about a sequel to this for decades to come that's just the way it, it works oh you did this one thing we want a sequel to it. We want a sequel to it. It's never going to stop. 
So making a new thing. Why aren't you making a sequel to the old thing? <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 you're in now. Uh, would you ever consider doing a follow-up under the right conditions to ukulele and the crackle stone? Absolutely. Yes. I would love it. Yeah. It, 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 you, um, when I finished crackle stone, uh, when it was done, um, because of the nature of its development, uh, which was very, very particular, you know, um, one of my friends jokingly said, um, when I wrapped up, uh, ukulele, um, because I had put so much work into it and, uh, it, ukulele, it's like as, as much as it, as awesome as it is, it has a very particular fan base, right? A very, it's a very specific endeavor in the sense that the people who will want to read ukulele, even though I designed it to be something that you can enjoy, even if you don't know the games, um, are going to be ukulele fans, right? That's just the way it is. Ukulele and rare fans. And so I'm making something for a very particular group of people. It, it happens to be something I thought I could do well because I'm, first of all, one of those people. And secondly, I, I just feel like I, there is a desire to celebrate the incredible passion I had for the, the this world and the people who made the games I grew up with. You know, and... Um, but my friend had told me, he'd be like, well, you did it. You made the best possible ukulele book <laughs> in the sense that he's like, you can't, it's like it, but you're, it, it's like <laughs> you made it for such a specific audience and you put the, the, uh, the amount of work in that most people don't for projects that have a very wide audience. And so, um, the challenge with, with Cracklestone and moving forward is, uh, the logistics of it, you know, would it go back to Kickstarter? Would it be something that we would do directly? You know, would Platonic be more involved? Uh, you know, there's a lot of questions on how we would go forward with that. And then there's the the ultimate problem, which is just my own limitations of time and the things that I'm trying to work on. So I can only do so much. And uh, this is very ironic because the story of, Cracklestone is really about a character learning to accept help from other people, which I'm notoriously bad at. <laughs> um, but cut, uh, cut, you know, cut the panel of you falling on your face. Yes, yes, that's that was me uh, for most of this, and um, yeah, so it was it was something I understood and I still understand. But I just have this trouble where I, I worry if I produce a book, it has to be done incredibly well. It, it can't be a a rush job. So I've tried to research ways that a book could be produced more quickly. Um, and I've come up with a few ideas that I'm working on, um, you know, and, and that would involve an approach that would change the art style and would um, modify the panel focus, like doing more larger panels, uh, uh, doing fewer overall panels that have a larger space on the pages, which I think is cool because it shows more detail but it also reduces the conflict between panels, which is um, I, I spend an inordinate amount of time on layout. Um, it's really what my job was with Insomniac is, is a you know layout previs artist. So I'm very worried about how things fit together on the page and trying to make a structurally distinct work of art on each page. So you have a work of art within each panel, but then you have a work of art that is the page in, in its entirety. And that that contrast is extremely time consuming and difficult to do for me. Um, so trying to reduce some of the barriers uh, would make it a lot more feasible to 
more rapidly produced books. I can tell you that I have written three additional ukulele stories. Um, and I have, I do have permission to go ahead with them. Nice. <laughs> uh, wow. and, but, but, uh, so I can tell you that, but it's more the, the logistics of one of which, by the way, would be just the funniest thing that I could ever think of. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it, it, I really would love to do it. But it's, the, the, I think if there was another ukulele story, I'd, I'd like to focus on Laylee. Um, and, uh, uh, I have and a story Bendy. for that and Vendy, Vendy will be the antagonist. Uh, and, uh, uh, she, she will, she will be destroyed at the end of the story. You can oh. count on that. <laughs> you know, daily always threatens us with the destruction of Vendy. The threats never stick. I, I don't she, fear. She'll get, she'll get her way with me. Hey, I look, don't fear if petty it's a, tyrants. If it's a, if it's a parallel universe, come on, you know, anything oh. can happen. So yeah, um, but no, there there's always the possibility of doing more. It's a matter of just figuring out the timeline and, and making sure it makes sense and also making sure it jives with what the company is doing overall so that it doesn't, um, you know, cause conflict. So well, I hope that makes sense. Yes, it, it does. It does. And obviously we're, we here at, at least DK Vine are completely understanding of the practical realities of creating any content. That being said, who do we have to kill to get you to do a Donkey Kong comic? Because oh man, <laughs> I, 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 l- let me say this is probably the highest praise I could give somebody. I am very, very protective when it comes to the Donkey Kong cast. Right? I I notoriously do not like the uh, the cartoon show. A lot of people do, and that's great. <laughs> I don't like it. However, uh, you know, there there are rumors every now and then of, oh, Donkey Kong might appear in the Super Mario movie that's coming up or or they might be doing a Donkey Kong movie after that. And I get the tummy rumbles. I get I get the the hive rustles. Right. I'm I'm just like, oh, no, because I think it there's so many ways you can misinterpret those characters in that world and get the tone way, way off. I mean, we, we've seen it happen in games themselves, let alone secondary media. However, you would be one of the very few people I would completely trust to get it right. Oh, so man. if you could take that to Nintendo, I don't know if my word carries any weight. It probably doesn't. But hey, there you go. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you this. So, <laughs> um, I, I guess... Logistically speaking, I think one of the reasons that that adaptations bother people is there's an inherent lack of trust that comes from another artist interpreting something, right? Because you have the original creators, uh, and I remember being a kid and thinking, uh, you know, if 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 like there there are these worlds, I don't want other people to touch them because one of the reasons I love them is because they're genuine and they're made by the people that had great passion in making them and you also have an inherent distrust of people seemingly trying to just financially capitalize on a popular franchise right and do they understand what it is and i think somebody has to deeply understand any project which is something i steeled myself for with what was going to be and possibly still will be an ongoing series of game adaptation books where you take each property and you really you have to go through a period of not just understanding what it is, but you have to feel what it feels like to be a fan uh, 
And also you have to feel what it feels like to create that world. And if you can't do that, then you have to excuse yourself from the production of it. And I just happen to be able to do this with uh, these, this world because I, I like rare is part of my, you know, makeup. Uh, you know, I experienced as a kid. I mean, my first, one of my first NES games I played was Wizards and Warriors. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember just being just astonished with what rare did in the nineties. Like I, I, it was, it would, I, I had, I, I remember when I got jet force Gemini, I think I got jet force Gemini and then donkey Kong six. Didn't they come out like a month apart from each other? Or they something? did. Yes. It was on, what a year. I like, I couldn't, I could not get over that. I, I remember blowing off every possible friend hangout and, uh, just all the stuff I was supposed to be doing, uh, you know, just to play the, like master these, like I beat Jet Force Gemini, which was a nightmare to beat all the way. Um, and, uh, and Donkey Kong 64, I also mastered that game and I love every minute of it. And I'm like, it, it, I know what it felt like to be part of that world. And so that's something that I can spill into these, these, uh, these projects. So it bleed into them, so to speak, you know? So I think that's maybe why it resonates is that you can feel that there's a, uh, there's a deep honoring love for what they created. There's with no cynicism there, you know, as Mm -hmm. much as they love to joke about themselves, I mean, I honestly, like, I'm passionately in love with them for having created that happiness as a, as a teenager, you know? And so it's, it's something that I wanted to truly give back. So it's a, it's a genuine labor of love, uh, to try and show respect for the, for these people who made things. And they have no idea that all these people love them so much. I mean, they saw the sales numbers, you know, but they don't. They don't know what it was like for particular little, you know, individual experiences and everyone's got their own experiences, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can speak to that because when we first had Chris Sutherland on our show, this was back when they just announced the formation of the company, the studio, and before they even launched the Kickstarter. Uh, I think at that point in time, they had no idea the the depths of the fandom and how much their work impacted us. And I think that was really kind of eye opening for them. And I think that I think they've come to terms with it more now, but they're still very, very humble. It might be like just virtue of living in the English Midlands. They don't really see it. Um, they're, they're not like they're they're kind of just removed from it all which i keeps them down to earth but at the same time like um i I think the only one who who i i've ever seen carry um carry themselves as like they know who they are is grant kirkhope and that's just part of his personality right but he (laughs) like he knows he's grant kirkhope he knows he composed all of these games um but yeah, you, you talk to somebody like Chris Sutherland or Steve Mails, and they're just like, "Oh yeah, I, I guess I guess I created Dixie Kong." Okay, you know? <laughs> hu- hu- humility is is in their blood. It's it was it was the same experience when I uh, uh, started talking with them, and I it, it's funny because I would as soon as I started to say something complimentary, they would immediately like insult me, <laughs> <They'd be laughs> like, "Oh, oh, so I uh, sought off with that." You know, um, yeah, like they, they just would not, they cannot accept any praise. <laughs> I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but it's, it's just like, it just did not resonate. Um, so it's just funny. I, I, 
you know, you just accept it. That is what it is. And that, that aspect of humility is, is tops with them. And it's one of the reasons we love them. I think, um, yeah. you know, they focus on the work and they, and they do incredible things and then they don't really, they, they don't, they don't pr- pat themselves on the back for too long before they jump into the next thing, <laughs> you know, so they're, they, they can be very prolific in that way. As far as Donkey Kong and, uh, Nintendo is, uh, notoriously difficult to work no. with on a licensing uh, basis, <laughs> as you might imagine. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, I, I actually was just par- I actually just participated in uh, assisting a friend with a Kickstarter that had to do with Nintendo and other companies' properties. And uh, the licensing is something that um, we're actually parallel in parallel working on right now. Um, so we'll see we'll see what's involved, but it involves legal discussions and. You know, with Nintendo, you not only have Nintendo of America is different from Nintendo of Japan, too, that, you know, you, you might be able to make the math make sense with Nintendo of America, but Nintendo of Japan may say no, because um, they just don't want, you know, random people doing interpretations of their characters, you know, so it's, it's a very difficult um process. And one of, one of the reasons that I do like the idea of approaching indie studios is that they tend to be a lot more <laughs> open with the use of their characters. Um, and so I, I always figured that with Nintendo, it's a matter of working up to them. I, I did pitch working with Rare uh, in, in the initial days, but they just were not interested, unfortunately, in doing like... I, I think I pitched doing a Banjo-Kazooie book, um, and it just wasn't, I, I don't know if it was that they weren't interested. I didn't really get a very specific reason, but it just was not to be. Um, and it, it it's possible that it was, uh, timing or logistics or whatever. There could be a million reasons, but in order to figure out any of this stuff, just take so much time and money. And it involves me having like a lawyer look at things and before you know it, you spent thousands of dollars just to try and pursue something. Um, and you know, I'm not a big company, you know, dream prison is just, is just a one man band, you know, um, that I have essentially for liability protection. It's, um, it, it, and it's kind of a cool name, which by the way, is also referenced to dream side because there isn't, there is a object in dream side called the dream prison. Um, but the, <clears throat> yeah, as far as pursuing licensing opportunities with Donkey Kong, I'm honored that that's something you think I, I could uh, in any way, shape, or form, do um, I, I would love to tackle it, but it, it I don't know that that would be possible anytime in the near future. Oh, oh look, like I I am fully aware of how Nintendo operates, and uh, I just wanted to let you know that if ever the opportunity falls in your lap, you have my permission. <laughs> Excellent. Seconded. <laughs> also, banjo, or really, honestly, anything you feel confident touching. Uh, this book is a great case for honestly you having your hands on anything oh oh i really appreciate the confidence man it took (laughs) a lot of work you know to to do this project um you know it's one of those things where it went into stupid territory you know i was um uh going over lines again and again to try and eliminate you know uh, uh, messy pixels, <laughs> you know, of, of, of extra detail. So there's a precision in the art that just, you know, I just thought this is going to be something where I really wanted to show people what I could do with a, a game property and one that I loved. And I had this rare chance. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, all right, I, I've got to do this right. Um, the challenge, of course, is you can't really make a book like this 
and have it be have it have a limited audience and have it financially be possible. It just it doesn't work, you know. And so some changes had to be made. And one of the reasons I've kind of not announced anything except for Dreamside, which is just already publicly known for quite some time, is because I've gone through a lot of life shifts over the past year where I kind of have shifted the way I think about things from a financial standpoint. Um, and with the effort of trying to um, find essentially other income sources and things like that that can help me supplement these so that I can move forward with them and continue to do them independently so that the end result is just as good or better. But um, the methodology of getting it done required a bit of a rethink. Um, and so, I, you know, that's what I've been working on. But anyway, I'm very excited about DreamSide. I think it's, I think it is a, even though it's not directly connected with uh, Rare and Platonic, um, I'm hoping that people will, uh, will like it because it's, um, I can't make anything better. It's, it's just, it's, <laughs> I can't even tell you how much effort has gone into it and, and it continues to go into it day by day. Um, but it's going to be an, an, an immense labor of love at the end that I think will be a strong callback to, um, some of the lush eighties fantasy films we remember. Um, and, uh, it's, it's going to feel very much like that. Something I've been really wanting to recapture is things like my love for movies like E.T. and the never ending story and, uh, you know, a little bit of Star Wars in there. You got Labyrinth and movies that just, they, they give you a, like a, a strong emotional sense, uh, when you think about them. And, and the, it's not a nostalgia thing. It's a, there was something about these that was so special. And I think a lot of that is being harnessed with, with Dreamside. So anyway, um, as I said, I, 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 I warned you in advance that I ramble a lot, Kyle. <laughs> so do we, uh, hence the problem of, of promising you only an hour for this interview. And this is on like, the short side of episodes I'm on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we could go on forever. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I love talking about it because it's, you know, it's what I love to do. Well, if you want to experience DM Combo's work, even if you didn't back it on Kickstarter, even if you just stumbled upon this podcast on Spotify for the first time, and completely missed that there was a grand tome edition at limited run. You can still order a hardcover or digital edition, although after all this time we spent gushing about it, why wouldn't you go for the hardcover, of Ukulele and the Cracklestone, as well as bookmarks, book plates, steady hand, steady hand, and more, all at dreamprismpress.com. You can also check out some pages from DreamSide as well, which look absolutely stunning. The older. <laughs> oh well, they still they still look stunning. All right, from my perspective, DM Combo, thank you so much for being here yet again. This was such a pleasure. I, I just hope there's an, there's an excuse for us to do this again. Yeah. Well, again, Nintendo Donkey Kong comic, make it happen. This has been a File 2 production. Que rico.